These are heady times for the people of Catalan. That's a feisty, independent-minded nation without a state, as people are like to say, in northeast Spain. And its capital, Barcelona, is one of Europe's trendiest destinations. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, two expert guides to Barcelona introduce us to the sights and character of Spain's most cosmopolitan city. Montserrat is much more than a religious symbol. Montserrat is actually a symbol of national pride. Spaniard Federico Garcia Barroso is joined by Susanna Perrochini, an Italian who also made Spain her home. Their enthusiasm for Barcelona matches this city's flamboyant flair. We'll also visit Rome to admire Michelangelo's astonishing Sistine Chapel. Angela Nickerson joins us later in the hour to help us imagine Michelangelo's Rome back in Renaissance times. Had Michelangelo lived somewhere else in Europe at the time, he might have ended up being a Lutheran. From today's dynamic Barcelona to the Rome of Michelangelo, it's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and we're getting an inside look at one of Europe's most effervescent cities, Barcelona, today on Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, we'll switch from surreal modernism to the more classical triumphs of Michelangelo in Rome. Rome may be the eternal city, but it was shaped in part by a mortal from Tuscany. Viva de España. That's what the Spanish just love to say. But when you're in the northeast corner of Spain, people say something entirely different. Visca Catalunya. That's the region that is an up-and-coming region. It's one of the most vibrant places along the Mediterranean coast, as far as I'm concerned. And when I was in Catalonia last time, I was saying, now, you're this, the region of Spain, right? And they said, no, we're not a region. That implies that we're part of Spain. We consider ourselves a nation without a state. I remember just in my early days of traveling when the Catalonian people could not teach their children to speak their language, when their traditional dances were outlawed, when they couldn't even fly their own flag. They had to fly their soccer team's flag rather than their Catalonian flag. And those days are long gone. And today, Catalonia is really, really uh, waving its flag with vigor. And to visit that part of Spain is, is one of the highlights of any trip to Europe. Today we're going to talk about Barcelona and we're going to talk about Catalonia. I'm joined by two Spanish guides. We've got Federico Garcia Barroso and Susana Perrucchini. Federico's uh, Spanish through and through. Susana is Italian, but she's lived in Spain for many years and she guides travelers all over Spain. And today we're going to talk about that fascinating region. Federico and Susana, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Buenos dias a todos. Buenos Hola. dias. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we talk about this, is it a region or, or a nation without a, a state? Spain really has quite a complex uh, makeup that way, doesn't it, Federico? Yes, actually, Spain is a, a country that has approximately the size of Texas. And there's a big variety, variety of people, languages, traditions. And that is quite obvious when you go to Spain. You can see that clearly enough everywhere. And you go to a sandwich shop in any big city in Spain, and you might find the menu in four languages, and all those languages are Spanish. Yes, exactly. All of them are uh, coexisting. They are all official languages. You know, Spanish is obviously the main language, but it is, uh, for me, I mean, it's quite understandable Catalan and Galician also. Basque is another story. So there's four different languages, Basque, Mm-hmm. Galatian, which is the Celtic mm-hmm. people in the northwest, mm-hmm. and uh, the Catalonian people, and mm-hmm. Castilian would be the Spanish. Exactly, and there are even dialects, you know, in, in other regions in the Mediterranean area and the islands, uh, and those dialects are coming from Catalan, by the way. Susanna, when we think of Catalan and the recent struggles these people have had, that relates a little bit to the dictator Franco, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, when I started to live in Madrid and then to travel around, the most fascinating thing was to talk to people. Of course, at that time, I didn't speak a good Spanish, so it was a good way to get in touch with people. And then my, as soon as my Spanish improved, I could get some nuances. Um, Franco was on power till 1975 when he died. And for a long, long time, it was a long dictatorship, 40 years, even more. And he was uh, ruling the country, as many books says, um, with the Iron Fist. So he was absolutely for one language, one religion, and uh, one uh, country. A so, monolithic country. Exactly. Like that sort of goes in keeping with fascism, doesn't it? Yes. Central, everybody is in lockstep, no exactly. questions asked, mm-hmm. melodramatic exactly. patriotism. Mm-hmm. Yes. Federico, what are your memories of, of the Franco rule? Well, I was a baby, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. That was a long I was time a ago. baby, of course I was. 
But anyway, it is a yeah, it is a, a fact. You know, it's a, a reality. You know, no freedom of speech. And fortunately, Spain and Portugal were absolutely isolated from the rest of Europe for for forty years, and that is our stigma. You know, that is our and th- uh, that must have really grated against the Catalonian people who mm-hmm. were really not even part of Spain. I mean, it'd be tough mm-hmm. if you're Spanish or Castilian, but if you're Catalonian, that would add salt to the wound. Now, mm-hmm. of course. Barcelona and Catalonia is uh, feeling its um, oats nationalistically. And one of the beautiful things about visiting Barcelona is the amazing artistic flair that this city has. Yeah, I do what, agree the, with the, you. The great artists. Who, who, who are you going to encounter when you visit well, Barcelona? Well, the first name that comes to everybody's mind is Gaudi. Gaudi. Or Gaudi, as you say. Mm-hmm. And actually, you say sometimes in, in American English, oh, that is so gaudy. comes from there. I mean, so ornated. Oh, is so, that right? So the yes. word ga- Gaudi comes yes, from Gaudi, yes. Antonio Gaudi, because he is a little over the top. It's yes. this modernisma, right? Absolutely. Exactly. That's like, would you, was it fair to call that Catalonian Art Nouveau? Yes, exactly. And it okay. uh, comes uh, under the name of modernism. And uh, I would say uh, Gaudi is not the only one, but he's for sure the one well-known yeah. all over the world. Puigi Cadafalc, Dominique Montaner, there are many more, and they, they were terrific, absolutely great, but... Many of them, they didn't go out the frontiers of Spain, and Gaudí did. Ah, okay, that's it. Because I know when I'm in Barcelona, and I've been going there for, for ages, uh, there's a, one street called the Rue of Discord, the yep. Street of Discord. And, yes. And it's like all of these over-the-top fancy Art Nouveau buildings, shoulder to shoulder, as if fighting for your and attention. And actually, the two names that I just mentioned in the block of Discord, we have at the very end, if you're coming from Plaza de Catalunya, Gaudí with Casa Batlo, and we have the other two buildings, now shops or private-owned, that they are Casa Matler and Uh Casa uh, Leo Moreira. But these are by these other guys who I cannot get my brain around, and I think realistic for an American tourist, if you can remember, Antonio Gaudí. That's enough. That's good enough. (laughs) That's really good enough. Federico, when Mm. you're taking visitors around Barcelona to appreciate Gaudí, Mm. uh, what are the top two sites that you like them to see? In Barcelona... Obviously, the, the Sagrada Familia, uh, the unfinished temple, the unfinished cathedral, the Casa Milà or Pedrera, which is a wavy facade house. That's the melting uh, ice cream kind of eaves that exactly. overlaps the center of town. And yeah. the, the Park Güell, you know, which is a kind of a fantasy park. Now, now Park Güell was like a gated community for rich people intended to be, wasn't it? Exactly. And it's a, sort of a designed suburb where you have the, the fancy market and mm-hmm. the fancy park and uh, everything sort of organized, and it didn't quite sell. Mm-hmm. So nobody actually bought the expensive homes there, but ultimately became a beautiful park for the city of Barcelona. Exactly, and he was supported by some members of the Catalan nobility and Catalan burgundy uh, to make that impossible dream uh, reality. That's park Guell, G-U-E-L. L, exactly. G-U-E-L-L. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, the ultimate site for modernisme is to see this magnificent church, the, the sacred family church, mm-hmm. Sagrada Familia, and it's still being built. And that's what's, when you think about these medieval cathedrals, everybody who started a medieval cathedral knew it would never be completed in their lifetime. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting to think that in our age, great cathedrals could be started by people who dedicate all of their creative energy and spirit to this structure, and they know it will not be done in their lifetime. And that's the case with this uh, Sagrada Familia. It's working as we speak. And Mm -hmm. tourists pay a pretty steep admission price, but that goes to the Continue it's to, a donation. It's a it's donation, donation to help fund the construction of this incredible church. If there's one church I want to see in the world, it's it's this church, and when it's completed, it's just awesome. Well, I don't know if it's going to be possible, because every time, you know, my first, very first time to Barcelona was in 1993, and I remember vividly that it was almost empty. If you've been there recently, you now know that there is, like, the main uh, nave, and they're building around so you can see people working. And every time that I get out the subway and the people are just a wow moment and I say to people, turn, and they see the the old facade plus the new additions. <laughs> Some people are funny because they say, oh, so they are remodeling. No, no, it's brand new. Is so they're building. And it's better and better every year. Yes. It has made noticeable progress. And it seems Gaudi was inspired by nature when you go into this great church. Exactly. All these uh, fantastic flora and exotic fauna, you know. there is Actually, there is a reason about that. I really think that art is a consequence of history, you know, and, and, and we see how in Spain at the very end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century had a big economical, social and political decline. And we were losing all the colonies in Latin America. 1898 is the year in which we definitely lost Cuba and the Philippine Islands. And it's quite understandable to see how many artists in those days, they just closed their eyes. They didn't want to be witness of that 
reality and they started to dream about amazing and unknown worlds. And some of the most remarkable architects, sculptors and painters were in Barcelona. Writers and composers were in Madrid. But let's think about this uh, closing your eyes and thinking about fantastic worlds. When you go into uh, Antonio Gaudí's mm -hmm. Sagrada Familia Church, you stand in there and it's like the columns are like giant trunks of palm trees mm -hmm. with the fronds mm -hmm. you, being the ribs that spread out from the top. Mm -hmm. And then Gaudí actually wanted to filter the light coming into the sanctuary as if you're in a rainforest or something like this. Oh yeah, absolutely. He has an incredible imagination. You it's know. a magnificent thing. Moving along to more artists that were born or inspired in Catalonia, of course, Picasso. Wasn't, was Picasso actually born in Catalonia? No, he was born in Malaga, uh, but he spent his uh, teens year in Barcelona. Okay. So that actually, it's a very important moment in his life. Picasso, when he died, he was very old, and he probably, he's one of the most prolific artists the history could, you know... And a lot of people, when they see Picasso everywhere else, he's into his abstract art. But when you're in Barcelona, oh, in Barcelona you see the art he did as a child, as a in teenager... In Barcelona, you have the real chance, or probably the best chance to see that Picasso could draw and could do everything. He was realistic. Super realistic. Incredibly realistic as and a teenager. And he was so gifted. Uh, there are some pictures that he did when he was 14, 13, 16 years old that not even a master can do after 40 years of studying. In realism. And one of the most interesting quotes I've read from him was uh, in a museum, I think, in France, which was filled by his abstract work. He said, as a child, I was forced to paint as an adult. And now as an adult, I'm free to paint as a child. Oh, that's, mm. a, that's a nice statement. Oh, I like it. And when you go to Barcelona, you've got to see the... Uh, it's my favorite Picasso museum because yeah. you can trace his evolution. It gets into the abstract stuff, but you trace that. And that's just one of the many levels or, or layers of this mm. incredible culture. And in Catalonia, we've got Salvador Dali. <laughs> Another character, I the would say. The ultimate surrealist <laughs> slash entrepreneur slash self-promoter, right? Yes. <laughs> his tomb, is his mausoleum, is actually a far-out museum. Uh, well, it's in Cataques, yeah. and uh, it's, uh, it's now a museum. For me, it's one of the most amazing museums. It's like being in a fairy tale uh, with a very thick, uh, surrealistic touch. So you've got two great uh, Dali sites. You've got his home in Cadiz, and then his mausoleum slash museum in mm -hmm. Figueres. How Figueres. Exactly. I'm sorry, yes, Figueres, yeah. Figueres. Figueres. And Salvador Dali's home is the best home of a dead person I've ever toured in Europe. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, all the whole trip, you're seeing dead people's homes, and most of them are pretty dead. You go here, and you find the spirit of Dali, oh, and yeah. it's just a It's trip. all over. I'm Rick alive. Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through Barcelona and Catalonia with Federico Garcia Barroso and Susana Perrucchini, and we've got more of Barcelona with your calls coming up momentarily. We're at 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com. Your questions and tips on visiting Barcelona and Catalonia are just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling through Barcelona and Catalonia in the northeast of Spain. I'm joined by Federico Garcia Barroso and Susana Perrucchini, two Spanish guides. And uh, Federico, 
this has been a long struggle between, uh, you know, Catalonia and the central government of Spain. Mm-hmm. And I understand there was recently uh, a vote among the people to see where they wanted to go. Exactly. And that was quite surprising for all of us, uh, for Catalans and for the rest of Spaniards. Quite surprising to see that uh, people were not really motivated about that. Catalan people, I mean. They so all... Catalan people had a chance now. Spain says, okay, you guys, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're grumbling. You can have a vote. You can say exactly. you want to stay with Spain or you can say you want to break apart. And mm-hmm. not many people even came out to vote. Just a 25% of total Catalan population. Really? The other 75% didn't care about that. Now, my hunch is before the unification of Europe, more people would have came out because it mm-hmm. was Catalan against Madrid. Mm-hmm. But now that Europe is united, mm-hmm. you know, you can break away from Spain, but mm-hmm. you can't really break away from Europe. Exactly. And Catalan <laughs> is part of Europe. And mm-hmm. Brussels favors the ethnic regions like mm-hmm. Catalonia. Mm-hmm which diffuses the anger among the ethnic underdogs and the victims of the tyranny of the majority and all that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Is that a fair assessment? There is. There is a little fear about that, of course. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a, sort of a trend in Europe that regions are less angry mm-hmm. because Europe is more friendly to regions as opposed to the old nations. Exactly. Susanna, what's your take on that? Well, I, I also think that it's a, it's a paradox, but in life we have many. Now that we are struggling and we are putting so much effort to be one country and now we are getting to 27 uh, European countries, join the European community now. Uh, there are many countries inside the European community that they want to underline how different they are because they don't want to be so globalized. Oh, so as Europe is uniting, there's that organic, grassroots desire to, to flex your own regional muscles culturally. That's my perception. And I think that in a way I do understand because you want to be uh, a European, but before you are Spanish, Italian, French, and you don't want to lose that. Consequently, in Barcelona today, people are sending their children to schools where Catalan is the first language to have those deep roots of, of Catalan culture as a first option, of course. So when I go on Sunday afternoon to the main square in front of the <laughs> cathedral after Mass and I see all of these people in a big circle <laughs> doing that Sardana dance, they're really saying, we are Catalonians. We may be Europeans, but we're also Catalonians. Oh, yeah. And don't oh, yeah, forget absolutely. that. That's and you a, know, it's something so spontaneous. It's a beautiful thing. It's, yes. a, it's, a, it's a touching thing. I get goosebumps when I watch it. We're talking about Barcelona here, and it's one of the great sightseeing cities in all of Europe. And of course, the highlight for a lot of people is this main boulevard, the Ramblas. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your experience with groups on the Ramblas. Well, the Rambla is uh, like if you only have a few hours in Barcelona for whatever reason, which is, of course, not fair to the city, go to the uh, Rambla and you have from the beginning Praça de Catalunya till the very end the monument to Columbus you got Spain on a minor scale. Or even better, you got Catalonia first. So Plaza Catalonia is the Times Square of the Catalonian people. Mm -hmm. This is the ultimate square, clearly the central square. And from there you have a wonderful grand pedestrian Pedestrian. boulevard going all the way down to the harbor front where you find this monument to Columbus. And all along the way, you've got bits of history and bits of cuisine and a wonderful market, the Bocaria. The Bocaria, which is one of the best markets that I know in, in, in Spain, really. It's a big, big structure with so much food, and Catalan food, Spanish food, exotic food nowadays, because we, we have to say the Las Ramblas nowadays is a very cosmopolitan place in Europe, honestly, and there you see a little bit of everything. And when you're in a great market like that, from a budget travel point of view, as I'm always trying to figure out with my guidebooks, I know the very good eateries, the fun places to eat, are in the market or near the market, because that's for local people and the people that actually work in the market. Exactly. Mm-hmm. One of the first places that you find once you enter the main gate on the right, it's Pinocho. Is that the, with one? Oh, yes, Juanito. Uh, Juanito. He's, he's a character. He's, he's a absolutely character. a character. He's your eccentric market kind of guy who's been there for 30 or 40 years. Yes. And he's still <laughs> and it's so his happy family. to meet people. Yeah. Now, as you go further down the Ramblas, you have huge crowds and lots of street entertainers and so on. And in my experience, every time there's a big crowd, there are pickpockets and oh, thieves yeah. working. Mm. And in Barcelona, I think you could make a case that Barcelona is one of the most dangerous places in Europe for petty, nonviolent pickpocketing mm-hmm. and purse snatching. And it happens on the Ramblas. Totally. You know why, Rick? We have a problem in Spain about this. We have a problem of legislation. Personally, I've been working with a policeman, you know, in, in Barcelona and other places in Spain. But the thing is that if you are under 18 and you're a pickpocket in Spain, nothing's going to happen to you. You know, there's a problem of legislation. If you're over 18... You get in trouble, but if you are just under 18, nothing's going to happen to you. And that is the reason why many 
So I don't, I don't maybe, say... maybe adults are managing these kids who are ripping off. Absolutely. Yes. And these kids, they come from other countries. The thing to do about it is not to be vulnerable. Every year when I go to the Ramblas, I've got mm. strangers' hands slipping slowly into my <laughs> pockets, and it doesn't bother me. It's kind of fun <laughs> because there's nothing in my pockets. <laughs> don't be vulnerable. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Federico Garcia Barroso and Susana Perrucchini, two Spanish guides who have names that are wonderful to pronounce. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Mike from Mount Airy, Maryland, emails us, and he writes, uh, I was surprised to find a higher number of pickpockets, street beggars, and so on in Barcelona than I found in Rome. Our guide experienced two pickpockets during our walk down the Ramblas in a single evening. Joe's on the phone in Worthington, Ohio. Joe, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call. We had a, a great time staying on Las Ramblas at uh, one of the hotels near the north end, but we enjoyed getting out. We, you know, enjoy feeling like Barcelonans. We went to the market there and bought food and fruit and drinks, and then were able to take the transit bus up to one of the north beaches and just have a picnic lunch there and swim and rent bikes on the beach. It's a lovely place. You know, Joe, that's a new dimension of Barcelona that I don't think existed, of very pleasant beaches. Yeah, they seem like they're manufactured a bit, but they're very nice. Oh, didn't they come out of the uh, World's Fair or the Olympics or something like this? Yeah, from mm-hmm. 1982, they started to remodel La Barceloneta, which is the closest beach to the city. And they took an industrial zone yep. and turned it into a luxurious, white, sandy series of coves and beaches. And Barcelona, again, is facing the sea. Thank God. <laughs> so what, what was happening in 1982? Well, the Summer Olympic Games right. and the total restoration of Barcelona. You know, so that was a huge turning point for Barcelona, really. Right now you've got this big, giant fish designed by Frank Gehry, sort yes. of as the model on that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the fish there, Joe? Yes, yes. We <laughs> rode by that a few times on bikes. It was pretty funny. Now, you said you were getting out of town, too. What was a highlight for you for a side trip outside of uh, Barcelona? Well, definitely Montserrat. We took the train there and then the vernicular up the hill, and uh, you can see all of Barcelona and La Familia. Now, first of all, that's sort of the spiritual home, uh, the historic uh, soul of the Catalonian people yeah. up in this monastery that's 4,000 feet above sea level in a mountain that they called Mount Serrat. Uh, I think that means the serrated mountains. Yes, they, exactly. They cut into the sky. Uh, was that uh, interesting from, from a nature point of view or from a culture point of view for you? Well, well, both. I mean, the, the church is fascinating. and There's a long line to go up behind the altar to see some relic, which I can't remember exactly what The Black was. Madonna. The Black Madonna. So what's with this Black Madonna? Can you tell us, Susanna? Well, actually, it's not the only example of Black Madonnas other European uh, towns, especially Spain and also the southern part of Italy. Uh, Black not because it has anything to do with Africa, but because uh, the candles, the Sioux produced by candles, Mm -hmm. and so the statues, many Mm -hmm. of them were made by wood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wood, they have pores, like Mm -hmm. our skins. So they were becoming, uh, over the years, darker Darker and darker. darker. Montserrat is much more than a religious symbol. Montserrat is actually a, a symbol of national pride. Obviously, many devoted people go there to see the, the Black Madonna, the Holy Virgin Montserrat, and that is a very popular name in Catalonia, obviously for every woman, you know. But at the same time, it was a kind of a refuge, a kind of a, a hidden place, you know, in difficult times, in, in, in Franco times. For intellectuals for and, intellectual and, and, and Catalonian uh, patriots, they would keep the flame of Catalonian culture alive in the darkest mm. times, way up there. Exactly, right there on the top of that mountain. It must have really angered Franco. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and Joe, you went up there by a train and then a funicular? Yes, yes. And then you can walk or hike through the area, but that got to be more than we expected. <laughs> you can get up to near where some of these monks lived in secluded caves. And so you took that. some hikes from the monastery then, hey? Yes, yes. And there's cisterns of water up there that they collected because it's very desert-like, but... They knew how to collect water and survive. Now, getting back to Barcelona, how did you manage on the streets with the threat of pickpockets? Well, you just had to be sensible like in any big city, keep stuff deep in your front pockets and keep, you know, moving along. You didn't stand someplace for... I found whenever, a there's, a, whenever there's a crowd on the Ramblas, it's a, sort of a commotion that's, you know, mm-hmm. there's some guys playing a shell game or something like this. There's action going on here, and uh, it's really quite exciting to poke into yeah. there and see what's happening, but you got to realize it's a little dicey, so you better have uh, your yeah. buttons uh, buttoned <laughs> up and your zippers done. Right, and the women keep their purses in front of themselves, and we didn't have a problem. All right. Hey, Joe from Ohio, thanks for your call. 
welcome. Happy travels. Jean's on the line in Longmont, Colorado. Jean, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. I had a question about uh, driving in Spain, renting a car for 12 days. We have a um, party of four going, and every time I look to see if traveling by train from we're flying into Madrid and going down to Granada and possibly to Barcelona, the train travel takes us back to Madrid or takes many hours from the south back. And everything I've read has been, you know, be very cautious. Cautious about <laughs> on what? The road. About renting a car about and driving. traveling on the highways. and. Hmm. Well, actually, when I was living in Madrid, I didn't have a car. And when I wanted to go out to discover the country, I always rented a car. Maybe coming from Rome, it's a little bit easier. But let me tell you that, uh, Gina, it's uh, pretty safe. And I would say that today in Spain we have fantastic highways, uh, many of them free of charge and pretty safe. Of course, 30, 40 years ago, the landscape and the situation was completely different, but not today. So, of course, I understand that being an American coming to Europe, even though we drive on the same side of the street of the road, can be a little bit, you know... Adjustment. Yes, an adjustment. But actually, Spanish drivers, I would say that apart from Madrid, that can be a little bit confusing, and Barcelona, but more Madrid than the rest of the country... Is okay. And we have the new bullet trains. I, I know oh, our yeah. groups mm-hmm. used to fly from Barcelona to Madrid, and now we take the bullet train. Oh, yeah. because what Much is better. It? Ave. Train. Ave. Like two and a half or three hours from Madrid to Sevilla. I mm-hmm. mean, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Those trains are fast, safe, cool, cheap. Comfortable. Comfortable. Mm-hmm. And undoubtedly, this year, Spain will have the most modern fleet of trains all over Europe, and those are actually in Spain. Well, that's great. And that is complemented by the fact that you can now, with discounted airlines, fly quite Mm -hmm. efficiently and economically from distant points in Spain. I got on a discount flight from uh, Santiago Mm -hmm. and flew to Madrid for for peanuts. And I imagine, and last year I flew into Granada, and of course you could fly from Barcelona to any major point in Spain, I would think, for under $100. Exactly. Those are the prices. Mm. So, Jean, there you go. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for your call. Barbara's on the phone in Lexington, Kentucky. Barbara, thanks for calling. Hi. One of the comments that I'd like to make is one of the areas that is up and coming and you don't hear a lot of tourists going there is the Gracia area. There's a whole lot of shops that are being opened up and a whole lot of restaurants and film areas. A lot of new things happening there. It's north of the Avenue Diagonal and it's where people should start going instead of going to the Ramblas and all of the real, in quotes, touristy. Try something new. I think you're right on there with a major shift. I mean, for 20 years, yeah. everybody's been going to the Ramblas and to the Bari Gatico, the Gothic, the old quarter where the cathedral is. And you still got to see that. But people are forgetting that uptown, away from the dark, sort of tangled Gothic area, is a grid-planned area called Gracia, which is quite nice. And when you look at the grid plan of Barcelona, it has this diagonal street that cuts right across it all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what, what's your comment on the, the Gracia? Well, it is a, one of the most trendy places in, in Barcelona uh, right now. There you find nice restaurants, uh, nice boutiques, and you can really find a very nice atmosphere, you know. Uh, local people and, and visitors, they are all there in that area. And it's a kind of, uh, well, elegant area in Barcelona, which is very yes. trendy yes. from a short time ago. Mm. And the Hospital St. Paul is in that area, so you can get your fix of Gaudi also. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting place to visit. Being that it, it is a, a working hospital, you have to keep that in mind and watch for people that are in wheelchairs and ambulances and such. But you're going to see some amazing architecture that you walk around the buildings, and it's just absolutely beautiful. And there are gardens beyond that that are wonderful to walk around in. And you're going to miss the crowds, yet you're still going to be able to see a lot of really interesting things from Barcelona. I've really had some good times walking around there. So Excellent that, place to so visit. Barbara, that's the Gracia, G-R-A-C-I-A, is that right? Exactly. Like that? Yes, uh-huh. Grace in English. And, uh, you know, when you talk about the parks and everything, uh, maybe the Echample is different, but this is basically uptown. Mm-hmm. And these are planned neighborhoods, aren't they, with a, with a park figured in and a school figured in. And, and mm-hmm. it's just all very sort of elegant and futuristic and beautiful. And, and you can very... walk and you'll have uh, the families will be sitting out in the little park areas with the kids playing football. 
and mom pushing the stroller and the dog is walking. It's a slice of Barcelona life. And you feel like you're part of it if you stop and have a cup of coffee and just watch people. And I feel very safe walking around there any time of the day or night because there's usually a lot of families and people that you know they're the regular people who live there. It's a, a really nice area to visit. Barbara, you make me want to go to Barcelona. Thanks for your call. <laughs> hey, I want to hop on a plane, too. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, and happy travels. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Barbara. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Barcelona and the whole northeastern corner of Spain, a very spirited, um, proud culture in a land called Catalonia. I've been joined by Federico Garcia Barroso and Susana Perrucchini. Susana, if you had a visitor to Barcelona and you wanted to make sure they had one special experience when it comes to eating, mm. what would you share with them? The, the Catalan cuisine is well known all over Spain because they are so good on tapas. We, you can find tapas all over the country, but the best, I would say, they are the ones in the Basque country. I don't know if Federico is with me on that. Mm-hmm. And agree. in Catalonia. So these little tiny plates that... Uh, the little portion of something. And a tapa can be everything. And they come with a little bit of regional pride, too. And oh, I, yeah. I find that the uh, the little um, underdog regions, the Basques and the Catalonians, are more likely to have Basque bars and Catalonian bars in their own neighborhoods because there's a sort of a solidarity yes. among these uh, mm-hmm. feisty little cultures that are struggling not to get bulldozed by the big cultures. And actually, the first language that you find in a menu, if it's a Catalan tapas place, it's the Catalan language. Then Castellano... So uh-huh. the Castilian, and then eventually English. All right. Mm-hmm. Federico, if you had a visitor that you were showing around Barcelona for the first time, what's the magic experience you'd want them to remember? I really like to go to these uh, family-style restaurants, you know, these taverns. I enjoy also sophisticated places, but I <laughs> really prefer to go to these nice places, cozy places where you have local food, where you see local people eating butifarra, Catalan sausage, white sausage, or the fouet, which is the Catalan pepperoni. I really liked a couple of places called the flutes, flautas, flauta, flute I love one, the flautas. Flute. Little elegant sandwiches, crispy Exactly, bread. crispy, those baguette breads, you know, with tomato, real and good tomato, and then a little bit of fouet, which is this Catalan pepperoni. And those are the things that I like and I'm, my friends like, I think. <laughs> and, and all of this is a celebration of the local culture. I remember the butifara thing, the sausage. It's like, no fast food, butifara. <laughs> Isn't there a slogan like that in Barcelona? Of course. It's actually, no, um, como se dice, in, 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 in Catalan or in Spanish, it's actually quite similar. No comida rápida, comida buena. It's just a way to say, ah. hey, no fast food. Yes, actually good food. And of course, that good food is Catalan food. Yes, and there is something that it's so easy to prepare, which is a pantumaca. They, they pronounce it in several different ways, which is a slice of bread with a little bit of salt, olive oil, and a tomato on top. It takes a little getting used to for an American tourist, but once you get that, it is really a <laughs> wonderful part. It. You can't leave it, and you miss it when you leave Catalan. I've been speaking with Federico Garcia Barroso and Susana Perrucchini. Thank you very much. Gracias. Actually, how do you say gracias in Catalan? Gracias. Gracias. Molt gracias. Moltes gracias. Moltes gracias. Uh-huh. They also say merci, like in eh, French, by the way. It's true, it's mm-hmm. true. Moltes gracias. Y adeus. Thank you very much. Thank You're you. welcome. <laughs> Last week on Travel with Rick Steves, we explored Michelangelo's hometown of Florence and how it influenced him. Coming up next, we'll give extra dimension to your travels in Rome as we look at the impact of the city and its people on Michelangelo and vice versa, through the art they left us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The last time I was in Italy, it occurred to me that few pieces of art actually make a noise. But Michelangelo's art does. As you approach the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican Museum, you hear a commotion. It roars like a rushing river. And then when you step into that chapel, the people are everywhere. The excitement builds. The guards, every five minutes, have to calm the crowds with a big amplified shh. Michelangelo excites people. Michelangelo was a Florentine. He worked in Rome because... Well, when the Pope hires you, you can't really turn him down. But Rome was a rough-and-tumble, ramshackle city around uh, the year 1500 when Michelangelo was there. You know, it wasn't a very glorious place at that time for the Vatican to be, but they were stuck there because, you know, upon this rock, St. Peter, I will build my church, and so on. So Peter's tomb was there, the Vatican was there, and the Pope literally bought the artistic dream team to come down from Florence to Rome and help spiff up the city. 
getting Michelangelo and all that marble and building that great dome and everything didn't come cheap. They kicked off a fundraising campaign into high gear, spread all the way across Europe. Of course, Martin Luther got wind of that, and here comes the Reformation. It was a heady time, and Michelangelo was really in the center of it. He was right there. He had a huge impact on the Eternal City. Today, we're going to talk about that. I'm joined by Angela Nickerson. She's written a book called A Journey into Michelangelo's Rome. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, there was my tour guide swing through the heady times 500 years ago in Rome. Oh, that's absolutely true. Um, Michelangelo's life seemed to just coincide with some really exciting things that were happening, both in terms of the city of Rome itself and then also in Italy. It was this nexus of incredible talent uh, that was arising and you had the invention of the printing press in 1450, and so there was this promulgation of knowledge and understanding and a great interest in the classics. Um, but then there was also all of this money to be spent, and people decided to spend it on the arts. So all of that together created this amazing environment. It was kind of this amazing stew for artists to live in. And Michelangelo was born just at the right time in the right place. Yeah. Michelangelo spent years in Rome embellishing the city pretty much for the needs of the church. In fact, though he always considered Florence his home, he spent more of his life in Rome than he did in Florence. So he really left an imprint on that city. It was sort of like going to a scuzzy, crummy city, wasn't it? I mean, wasn't all the elegance in Florence and and these Florentines like had to wash their hands a lot and try to stay with their friends in Rome because it was not quite as elegant and comfortable of a city? Well, definitely. Rome had suffered a lot during the Dark Ages. Um, It wasn't the beautiful city that it must have been um, during the height of the Roman Empire. And it was a city where the Tiber River was just filled with filth, um, and the streets were filled with human excrement. And it, it it was a dirty, disgusting city in many ways. But the popes knew that in order to hold on to their power. They had been threatened in the 13 and 1400s. At one point, um, there were several people claiming to be popes. And of course, the papacy had moved to Avignon, France. Um, And so they knew in order to keep the papacy strong in Rome, they were going to have to turn Rome into a first class city. And so they poured money into the city into making it beautiful and into making it the kind of city that they envisioned as being appropriate for the seat of Christendom in Europe. You can see that, for example, um, Julius II decided that he was just going to build some straight streets in the city. And you see Via Giulia, which is um, very close to the Tiber River. It is the straightest street in Rome because he simply bulldozed a whole bunch of buildings and built a new street that was perfectly straight. It's pretty much the only one in the city. If you walk down Via Giulia, which is a wonderful place to walk, you get an insight into what some of these Renaissance popes longed for within their home city. Now, this was a time when humanism was running rampant, and uh, there was kind of a struggle between humanism and pre-Christian philosophy and medieval-style Christianity. And, you know, Michelangelo was sort of the cutting edge here. He was an intellect, and, and they sort of embraced humanism. But was it really at odds with Christianity, or could Christianity in the time of Michelangelo embrace humanism? Talk a little bit about that sort of philosophy slash theology that Michelangelo had to deal with when he was hired to do something for the Pope. Oh, Michelangelo had to be uh, both a theologian and a philosopher um, at the same time. Unfortunately, he was a very gifted and intelligent thinker. He was greatly read. He had been tutored as a young man um, by a humanist. He spent much of his life reading and had great friends with whom he would have theological and philosophical discussions. But this wasn't uncommon because the advent of the printing press really brought all of these great works They made them much more accessible to people. So he had to walk a very delicate line between what he believed philosophically and theologically and what the popes wanted. I kind of think that perhaps 
Had Michelangelo lived somewhere else in Europe at the time, he might have ended up being a Lutheran because he disagreed with a lot of the things that the popes did. But fundamentally, he knew which side his bread was buttered on, <laughs> and he knew where his paychecks were coming from. So well, he had to be very careful about that. Well, he was decorating the Pope's um, chapel, the Sistine Chapel, and it was due for a renovation, and the Pope hires Michelangelo to do it, and we get the Sistine Chapel. Uh, let's talk about the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Here we have God giving Adam the spark of life. You know, the famous uh, scene that's in the bottom of fancy swimming pools and so on. And uh, <laughs> when, when Michelangelo unveiled that impressive humanistic centerpiece of the Sistine ceiling, did that go over well with the Pope and the, the Pope's men who paid for this? It did initially because, of course, Julius II was the one who commissioned the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And Julius II was as much a humanist in many ways as Michelangelo. Um, they were... They were kind of two peas in a pod. Hmm. And uh, this great display of of human bodies on the ceiling, there were some who disapproved of this, but largely it was enormously popular. It wasn't until after the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation hmm. that Michelangelo's penchant for nudity and the glory of the human form fell out of favor. And in his later years with the Council of um, Trent and some of the other political maneuverings that were happening, there was a great movement to go in and paint over many of the nudes in the Sistine Chapel. Um, and fortunately, the artists in Rome prevailed upon the the powers that be, and they didn't do it until after Michelangelo's death. Oh, my goodness. Um, That's a beautiful, thoughtful thing, not to let Michelangelo go through that indignity to have his paintings uh, covered up with with uh, little fancy uh, modern loincloths or whatever. Wasn't there a guy actually nicknamed Britches that was hired to, to paint <laughs> over all of the, the penises on the uh, Last Judgment? Indeed. And he had been one of Michelangelo's um, assistants, oh, and man. he was hired Say after his so. death. Oh, I know it's how could terrible. He, how could he live with himself, painting over Michelangelo's beautiful bodies? Hey, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Michelangelo's Rome with Angela Nickerson, who's written a, a great book called A Journey into Michelangelo's Rome. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Jan's on the phone in Mountain House, California. Jan, thanks for your call. I I have a passion for anything Italian, and specifically Michelangelo, and I am curious as to why he relocated from Florence and when he was in the throes of everything and went to Rome. Well, he was a smart guy, and he followed the money. Oh. He, he had great ambitions. Florence started to decline. It had been the center of all art and power, but with Lorenzo de' Medici's death, and his son was not such a great ruler, and Michelangelo could read the writing on the wall, and he knew that a papal commission was the only commission that was going to really keep him financially secure for his life. And so he made his first trip to Rome trying to achieve that papal commission. Um, and he spent the rest of his life kind of balancing back and forth between Florence and Rome, wherever the money actually was. But in the end, he um, spent more of his life in Rome because that's where more of the money was. How interesting. Now, was he aware when he went to Rome that the focus of his talent would be on painting rather than sculpturing? No. He considered himself very much a sculptor. Um, uh -huh. In fact, when he was given the commission to do the Sistine Chapel ceiling, um, he was not the only person who thought maybe he couldn't do it. Bramante, who was um, working on the St. Peter's project at the time, said, oh, I can't even imagine. Why would you give this project to Michelangelo? He can't possibly do that. He's not a painter. But when the Pope says, please paint my ceiling, you have to say, okay. <laughs> and Angela yeah. and Jen, when you look at the Sistine ceiling, when you look at those bodies and the musculature, you see a person whose passion is for sculpting. I mean, these are, he was a sculptor with a paintbrush when you look at his work, I believe. 
Oh, absolutely. I, he brought them to to life, and it's amazing to me that somebody had so much talent. One human being was as gifted as he was, and we can enjoy that now. And it was a great gift to mankind. Jen, you bring up an interesting point. Uh, Angela, give me your take on this. I've always thought when Michelangelo's passion was for sculpting, it kind of fit his faith. He was humble in the presence of God. He was considered himself God's tool, and he thought the most noble art form was not being like a creator, like Leonardo, painting on a blank canvas, creating from nothing, but actually to reveal something that God put into the marble. Michelangelo actually believed that the figure was inside the marble, and what he needed to do was was be inspired to chip away the excess and reveal the beauty that God put in that stone. Uh, I've heard that from guides in Italy. Does that make any sense to you, Angela? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, In fact, when you look at the way he sculpted, he didn't sculpt taking a block of marble and working around it. He sculpted from front to back. Just peeling it so away, blowing away the excess. literally revealing it. Wow. Yes. Now, how old was he when he did, say, David? When, or what, was one, what was his first masterpiece? How, how young was he when he made his first masterpiece? Well, his first masterpiece was the Pieta. Okay. Um, the Rome Pieta, and he was 24 years old. Now, think of, a, think of a 24-year-old you know and give him a hunk of a big block of marble and a chisel and say, you know, go to work. I mean, David must have been divinely inspired. I mean, it's, it's the only way that a 24-year-old could, could create that thing. Absolutely. He, he was given God's hands to create, and what a gift it is to all of us. And I think when we look at David, we see that same sort of theme. I love the, the notion of looking at David. And when people first looked at Michelangelo's David, they said, well, the, the hand is too big and too developed. And, of course, the theology of David, the boy slaying the giant, was the little boy couldn't slay the giant, but God could slay the giant. And David was acting, uh, you know, with God. And it was actually God that powered that stone. And when we look at that overdeveloped, oversized hand on David, that's the hand of God. And that sort of fit the whole notion that Florence was uh, on God's side and able to rise above its bully, giant, Goliath-type city-state neighbors and and succeed. And uh, I just love to psychoanalyze that. And that ties again this humanism where when you look into the eyes of David, you're looking into you know medieval man coming out of the darkness and into the Renaissance and sizing up that bully of darkness and, and entering into a new world where they're much more confident. But you're also seeing that influence of... The classical sculpture, which Michelangelo, especially when he was in Rome, but also in Florence, was able to take time and to study because, of course, collecting the art of the, of the ancient Romans became very, very popular during his lifetime. And so he was able to look back and look at those ancient sculptures and model and use them as a touchstone for his own work. Jan, thanks for your call. Well, thank you very much. And Shonda's on the phone in Sacramento, California. Shonda. Yes. I'm curious because I've been to Rome on a brief trip and I've seen Michelangelo's major works. I'm curious about, Angela, what are your favorites of his lesser-known works? Uh, You know, his fingerprints are everywhere. But I have to say one of the places that I tell people not to miss is Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. It's a little church around the corner from the Pantheon. And in this church is Michelangelo's sculpture, The Risen Christ. It was highly loved at the time. And it is really overlooked now. But it is um, a figure of Christ, nude. At, at, at a later point, they added a bronze loincloth over his genitals. But um, he is coming out of the tomb and emerging. And it is a wonderful piece of art. It's just beautiful. And it's about 100 yards from the Pantheon. And the Pantheon is just inundated mm-hmm. with tourist crowds. And you step around the corner and you go into Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, one of the few Gothic churches in Rome, and you're all alone with a Michelangelo masterpiece. Oh, it's totally true. And it's free. <laughs> Another free one is um, Moses, isn't it, in Peter and Jane's church? Absolutely. That is also free. And again, and that's a, no that's line. And that's 200 yards from the Colosseum. Everybody's packing into right. the Colosseum, and they're missing that. Another fun tip would be if you're going to extend your sightseeing hours, you can see the great Michelangelo's for free without any crowds in the churches, which open at 7 in the morning, 
whereas the national sites open at 9 or 10 o'clock. So you can beat those crowds, be in the cool of the early morning, and be all alone with Michelangelo if you know where to go. Absolutely. Nice. Thanks for your call, Shonda. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Angela Nickerson. Angela's written a book called A Journey into Michelangelo's Rome. Angela, how did your work on this book enable you to better appreciate the genius of Michelangelo? You know, I was familiar with all of the iconic images with the Pieta and the David and um, the great works of art. But I feel like in doing the research, I got to know the person behind it, too. His religious feelings, his philosophy, the friendships that he had. He was an incredibly loyal friend and employer. And, and getting to know the trials and tribulations of his life, he just became a much more whole person to me. And certainly he was a genius. But beyond that, there was a man who felt things deeply, who understood things deeply, and who was keenly attuned and really shaped by the world that he was living in at the time. So if I pull this back to what helps a sightseer appreciate Michelangelo, to properly embrace the art, you really need to embrace the man who made it, and that means understanding the age in which he worked. You're able to understand and appreciate the Renaissance, and then the magic of Michelangelo becomes a highlight of your travels. Indeed. Angela Nickerson, thanks for giving us an insight into an artist that the more you know about him, the more you realize it's understandable why he's so many people's favorite. Thank you so much. Happy travels. Last night I dreamed about you I dreamed that you were older You were looking like a castle With a scar across your shoulder Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. We have links to our guests, and we welcome your thoughts and travel tips in our online listener forum. It's all on the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Thanks for production help to Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, and Robin Cronin, and to Capital Public Radio in Sacramento, and to T.S. Eliot for a snippet from his poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Music excerpts today included the voices of Emmylou Harris, Victoria de Los Angeles, and Montserrat Cabier with Freddie Mercury. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves Online Travel Store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Spain, Portugal, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.